What is up, everyone? Tim here. You may know me as Cranjus McBasketball on Twitter, and we are here with another edition of the Lakers Exceptionalism Podcast, brought to you by the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Today's a solo pod. Uh, Tom is not with us, and I'm thinking we're going to start doing some more solo pods here and there. Maybe one more a week. I'll see if I could do more than that. I, I know I struggle when pods do like two, three, four episodes a week, so I don't want to overload anybody, but... We've got some, you know, key concepts we can cover, some interesting special topics, and today that topic is defense. We're talking all things defense. We're talking film, we're talking concepts, we're talking Lakers-specific roles, schemes, coverages, all all sorts of different things, Uh, a little bit of the data, and I think the best place to start is to say that defense is hard. Measuring defense is hard. When we, when we look at, like, the data on defense, most of it is only showing activity. So, like, hey, we're generating, you know, passing lane defense, pickpocket rating. Those are some of the advanced ones that we use. Um, but, like, steals, blocks, rebounds, it's, you know, either you're doing it or if you're not doing it, it doesn't show up. It's kind of like being a cornerback in the NFL where if you're doing a great job and you're locking guys down, they're not going to get a lot of catches. They're not going to get a lot of targets. So you might not have a lot of interceptions or deflections, pass breakups. It's similar to that in basketball. And just in terms of how the sport of basketball is covered in general, a lot of our data is reliant upon outcomes. And the lack of an outcome means we just don't see it. We're blind to that. So this is an area where me as a data guy, like I need to be out in front of this and say, here's what we have. Here's what it looks at. Here's what we don't have data for. Here's what we can't look at. And we, you need to, I need to, we need to fill in those blanks with real film study. And this isn't highlight scouting. This isn't a couple clips on Twitter. You have to understand when it comes to defense, a lot of it is just kind of assumed or, or the expectation is that you make basic rotations. If you're standing out there and your guy cuts and you like completely miss it, that's not good. If your guy is awake and and he takes away that cut, like, yeah, that's what you should be doing. You know, it's not like huge credit towards that. That's not a highlight play. That's a basic rotation. But a lot of defense comes down to basic rotations and execution of key concepts. So when that's happening, even the bad defenders are going to be executing those concepts like 40, 50% of the time. The good ones are doing it 80, 90, almost every time. And so because of that, it's kind of like three-point shooting where like I can go post five minutes of any player in the NBA being really crappy at at defense and like missing rotations um, or making rotations, missing threes or making threes. But the thing is with threes or like free throws, you can go watch 15 minutes of LeBron missing free throws. But then you can go look at the actual stats and say, oh, you know what? He's actually this good of a free throw shooter. This is like, that's your little check and balance. We can do that for a lot of simple things. When it comes to defense, we don't have those stats. And that is why recently, hopefully you got a chance to check it out. I put together a pretty big analysis. We've been talking about it in the Discord for a bit. I ended up posting it on Reddit to try to get it to a new audience, see if anyone, you know, they usually don't like my stuff, but (laughs) they appeared to like it this time. Uh, Hopefully you got a chance to take a look at that. What I did was I looked at every new Laker guard or wing, and then I also looked at THT, and for 24 key concepts, uh, different cover, like different rotation types, different on-ball, off-ball things, looking at your chaser defense, your pick-and-roll defense, not just as big categories, but Looking at actual technique, actual IQ driven things. How is your how are, how good are you at avoiding screens? How good is your back pressure after going over a ball screen? How good are you at playing the passing lanes on ball when guarding a player on the perimeter? Are, you, are your hands down? Are your hands up? Are your hands moving around? Are your hands mirroring where the ball is? Little things like that that we don't have data for that. So it really took a lot of time, a lot of film. It took forever. But after a week of spending all my free time, I was able to put together a pretty cool heat map showing per player for each area and then aggregating those areas to on-ball, pick-and-roll defense, off-ball chaser defense, and then rotational defense and positional defense. How good are each of these players? 
and I, I put together some really rough like overall ratings, but even those I, I wouldn't take too much you know, take that with a grain of salt. That's some really, really rough estimating, you know, what of those five or six components is most important, but that should help get you up to speed on what the Lakers coaching staff has to work with. And as we go through this pod, there were several questions we got around, like, where can the team optimize players with lineups or roles or screen coverages? We'll get to that. Back to defense being hard. So we have activity data. We have impact data. I mean, you're, you're always going to find those clowns who are using like defensive rating as an indiv- individual defensive stat. It is not the case. It has not been the case. I try to tweet it out like once a week. Uh, there are some, you know, among impact stats, there are several prominent ones that aren't super accurate. Uh, like your defensive real plus minus isn't, isn't something I would really lean on to evaluate defensive impact or like that defensive rating is something people try to use to measure defensive impact or just your defensive on off that raw stuff isn't ideal but i mean data people are similar to coaches in that if you've made a good faith effort to create something others generally aren't going to really go at you for it now if, if you're a sleazy company pushing stuff that you know we know you can't do or trying to make something more than it is they'll go at you uh, you know, you can have great graphics, shitty math, and get a lot of followers, make a lot of money, sign some book deals, but other data people will call you out for that. But if you're doing good faith effort and putting stuff together, you know, more power to you. And that can leave folks unchecked at times and lead to some bad stats being out there. But uh, one thing I do want to talk about is with our defensive LeBron stat, our D LeBron, defensive impact. It does a pretty good job. And with that, and with several of the others, something that you'll notice and something I get a lot of questions about is like, hey, why are centers rated so highly? Why are anchor bigs so, you know, there's an imbalance here. Is there a positional adjustment? Like what's going on? And the thing is, there's no positional adjustment. It's not a box score thing, though that is often the narrative. That's the easiest thing to point to and say, hey, you know what? Rebounds and blocks are two of the three box score stats for defense. It would make sense if this were a box score thing, but it's not. In reality, anchor bigs just just have the highest impact in the regular season as a collective whole, just because that's the most important defensive role, similar to like a quarterback in football. When you look at advanced on-off data, even adjusting for variables that we know are luck-driven and adjusting for the quality of the teammates on the court with them, the opposing players on the court with them, all of those factors, no box score at all, we still see anchor bigs being most important just from a pure like defensive impact standpoint. Now, this can change in the playoffs, and we see versatility become more important. We see drop coverage go away in lieu of more aggressive screen coverages, so a lot of your less mobile anchor bigs either have to change roles and aren't great fits for that role or continue doing their same thing, but it's not the right defense to guard the offense. And so we see going from the regular season to the playoffs, certain types of players rise and fall in importance. That doesn't mean that these regular season stats aren't right. It just means that the playoff game is different. So centers, anchor bigs, they're going to show up a little bit higher. If that's really irking you and you want to get what you think might be a more accurate view filter down upon that group whether it's centers or anchor bigs or whatever and just see how they compare to their own position group maybe the they're the i don't know maybe they're an average anchor big defensive impact guy but they show up as a i don't know 70th percentile defender and neither of those are wrong it's just about how you're framing things it's similar to the letter grades i put out with my analysis that was pure film but i tried to kind of calibrate it to all players so when we're looking at perimeter defense, which is what I was doing, you're probably like Malik Monk isn't an F or like Kendrick Nunn. Like he's an okay perimeter defender in this and different elements. He was like a B or a C when if you were to only compare him with rotation caliber guards, those ratings would go down a bit. This is just something we, we see. If you look at interior defensive stats, you know, <laughs> blocks are going to favor big men. Interior defensive stuff's going to favor big men. If you filter it down just to only looking at bigs, then it might better match your eye test. So that's a a little note I want to put in there. Um, But just (laughs) defense is hard, man. The film's hard. It's so easy to be led astray. 
it like every single year I see somebody post a thread of like LeBron missing some rotations or LeBron making great rotations. And it's so easy to get people to say, oh yeah, you know what? This guy stinks at defense. This guy's great at defense. So among any aspect of the game, just because there's no data to base people in uh, or base people with, a lot of the data out there isn't great. And it's really easy to sway opinions back and forth. Defense is such an area of opportunity as a collective whole. We as analysts, we as fans to understand players. So you might have some preconceived notions about what the Lakers have brought in from a defensive standpoint. Hopefully today, hopefully with that analysis I did recently, hopefully on future pods, we can bring it, you know, refine it a little bit, tweak it a little bit more towards what we're seeing on film. But that's that's how that looks. Another thing I guess I'll mention is my film background. I know many of you, all of you probably know I'm a data guy, but that's always for me been second to the X's and O's. I've, I've been a film person. I've been a data person. I've been an X's and O's guy. My core competency, my like top skill set is with X's and O's. I design plays. I design playbooks. I, you know, help optimize play calling. This is something I consult with uh, for pro and college teams, amateur teams, like that's really my bread and butter. Using data with that isn't an issue. Um, I see those, you know, leveraging all of the information you have available is is amazing. And that's the right way to make decisions. And that's the way it is in business. And that needs to be the way it is for sports as well. It's not just anecdotal like, yo, you know what? I think I saw this because you have to realize. And I think what I've been able to do has gotten much better since I realized like, my own experiences are really, really small proportion of what is out there overall. I trust my ability to analyze, but I know I don't have all the information. I don't have all the cool ideas. If I can analyze my cool ideas, great. If I can analyze and find cool ways to manipulate everybody's cool ideas, I can do so much more with that. And you have to think that way when it comes to using both data and film. And when they disagree with each other, Make sure they first disagree with each other. Make sure the data is, you know, capturing what you're think it's, thinking it's capturing or what you're using it to say it's capturing and then go see why that might be. But for the data I use, I haven't really seen too many like issues or glaring issues where I'm like, oh man, I know this is bad and I purposely don't use this. If it's bad, I don't even use it to start with. So I'm a data guy. I'm a film guy. I, uh, you know, analyzing opposing team set plays at the the power five D one level that that was something that I did in previous years back when I was in grad school and game planning, how to shut down those set plays, what the other team might do to counter what I'm doing. And then how we'd counter that, that was really the X's and O's chess match that helped me learn all of this. And going through that film room experience, learning different key defensive concepts. Like, I mean, I knew shell defense from playing basketball, but going through like, you know, uh, technique and timing and who needs to do what when it comes to not just tagging because tagging is pretty straightforward but trapping the box sinking filling different teams can do things different ways but those are some concepts that I want you to remember and we're gonna get back to but there's a lot to basketball that you know until you're exposed to it you just don't see it as well but then once you're taught it once you're introduced to it then you can start seeing it everywhere and hopefully that's where we can get everyone to when it comes to defense. Because right now, a lot of watching basketball is watching the ball and seeing if someone got beat or not. And there's so much more to defense than that. So that said, (laughs) I mean, I had my notes. I also solicited questions on Twitter through the Discord. And we got some pretty good ones. So we're going to run through those. I'm just realizing now that I didn't write down all the Discord ones into my notes. So maybe there needs to be a part two to this. But we'll run through some of the questions that we got and my answers for those. And then, you know, we just got more content coming later, I guess. So the first question is, can we really project who is good at defense? I remember you saying that defensive metrics often lag actual performance, where you see players grade higher on defense because of their past performance rather than what they can do now. So this is the way I'd look at this. While people like to use impact metrics, those catch-alls, like they call them, as the end-all, be-all, they're, they're not. They're an estimation of impact. That's why we like to use tiers instead of rankings because, you know, a 0.2 d- difference doesn't really mean all that much. But they're an estimation of impact for each player within their current roles, in their current scheme, within their current lineups. 
change those variables and that impact can really fluctuate up or down. So take a perimeter big from Minnesota and put him on the Lakers in completely different lineups as an anchor big (laughs) running different scheme coverages and what they're able to produce is going to be different. It might be better. It might be worse. That's, that's really the optimization game, but that's why when I'm looking at, you know, who the Lakers brought in and how they might do, I'm not just looking at past impact. I'm trying to look at skill set and then evaluate that skill set to a fit within different lineups, different schemes, different roles, and then from there trying to forecast what that might turn into. This is really why I dug into that like 60 to 80 minutes of film. By now it's actually more than that, but at first it was 60 60 to 80 minutes of film on each new Laker Garden wing uh, to evaluate those skill sets. Again, it was those 24 key concepts, and from those grades, I now have a pretty good idea of where that starting point is. And from that starting point, now the next steps are figuring out how do we apply those skill sets best to roles. I think Trevor Ariza, he was a wing stopper this past year. I think he could be really good in a helper role. Kendrick Nunn was a point of attack defender. I think he can be even better in a chaser role. THT, opposite. He was a chaser. I think he can be even better in a point of attack role. That, those, that analysis can lead me to those sorts of insights. And we can dig into later some of the specifics on why I believe those things, but that's just an example of how getting a grasp on skill set can help you define those roles. It's like, you know, you go to college, you get your marketing degree, you're not going to go out of college and and take an engineering job. That's not going to be a great fit to your skill set. Go take your marketing job. And then within that marketing job, maybe 10% of it is, I don't know, presenting. And you're not very good at presenting. But that is going to optimize you better than another role that's in marketing that is 40% presenting. So it might be the same kind of job, but the specifics might be a little bit different. And that is kind of how going from like a chaser to a point of attack defender for THT can be really important for him because as a POA defender, he doesn't need to rotate as much. He doesn't need to be doing those tagging, sinking, filling, trapping the box, all that stuff, which again, I need to explain a little bit, but a lot of those off ball rotations you have to do most as a helper. You're going to do a lot of as a perimeter big. You're going to do a good bit of as a wing stopper and as a chaser. As a point of attack defender, you don't have to do as much of that. So as much as THT going to a POA role is good in terms of unlocking his like length and turnover generation, his defensive playmaking, it's also mitigating his weakness of being a poor rotational defender. So those are the types of things you got to think about. And when we go into like, hey, how do we take this skill set and fit it to scheme coverages? If you've got a team that is really good at switching, switch. (laughs) If you have a team that stinks at back pressure and is really good at rotating, I'm not going to do a no man behind, you know, 2v2 drop coverage with no rotations behind it. If your team is bad at rotating and really good at back pressure, maybe you lean more into that 2v2, we're going to drop with our bigs, we're not going to ask our three other defenders to rotate, and then that guard defender in the action, he needs to do his, his you know, avoiding the screen, get that back pressure. If that's a fit to your skill set, that's a good scheme cho- choice, a good, good way to go. And that's something Frank Vogel's been really good at, we'll talk about in a little bit, but something I'm keeping an eye on are some X's and O's, like wholesale changes for the Lakers this upcoming season, which changes how you look at the players they have already and the players that they've brought in. So really to answer the question, looking at like their D LeBron, it's nice, but you need to contextualize it. You got to look at matchup difficulty. You have to look at their versatility. You have to look at the role they're in. And then even then we have a lot of gaps that we need to fill in with more film analysis to get a sense for their skill set and then better understand which job they best fit within and which schemes are a best fit for their skills. The next question is a two-parter. The first part is, what are the biggest weak weak points in the roster defensively? I would say at this point, off-ball rotations are a weak area, both in terms of some of the guys that are still in the roster and then some of the new players brought in. And then I'd say on-ball defense among players large enough to defend scoring wings. We're a little bit weaker there, but I'm optimistic, and I'll explain why later. But I'd say rotating off ball is one of the larger weak points. Um, and that's something that worries me. And I also think with our bigs, with when we look at Dwight and uh, Gasol, 
neither of them are like I mean Dwight's better than than Mark is, but in terms of being drop coverage bigs, they're not Rudy Gobert's. Again, Dwight's better than Mark. I think Mark is is concerning to me because he's not a great drop big, but we also saw him struggle in mobile screen coverages in the playoffs after COVID in situations where the Suns were targeting him, like targeting him not just in that like hey, we're going to go after that guy. They were targeting the center <laughs> they were targeting the, him and drummond and trez when trez was out there and all of them struggled when the suns were running scheme when, when the suns were running sets that attack specific scheme coverages so i'm a little bit less on the like hey mark is a corpse at this point bandwagon than some people are but he and his health and his mobility concerns me because if he's not mobile and he looks more like his post covid self this upcoming season He's going to have to play some drop coverage. And he's not a good drop, drop coverage big at this point. He's not a great rim protector in, in terms of like helping and blocking your shot and all that stuff. He's just going to wall up and try not to foul you. And you just have to make shots over him. But I don't like the idea of guys attacking him downhill. And, and guard ball handlers, you know, trying to go around him or go through him. Like, that's not a great situation. That's why the, the scheme coverage last year where the Lakers really stopped drives early was important in order to protect guys like Gasol, Drummond, and Trez. So I got off on a little bit of a tangent there, but rotating is a big weakness. And then the second part of the question is, uh, which teams out there are capable of exploiting those weaknesses? So from a rotation standpoint, depending on how the Lakers run their defensive schemes, if they do what they did this past year, and they are asking players to rotate a lot, Teams that run a lot of ball screens are going to force a lot of rotations and we're going to see just a higher volume of mistakes. If the Lakers move towards you know switching or no man behind drop and there's less of an ask to rotate in ball screens, just teams that can penetrate, beat you one-on-one, penetrate, kick, and then have secondary and tertiary playmakers that can dribble the ball, do something with it, and just force your defense to continue rotating, not just rotate once. In terms of scoring wings, this was actually something that I thought was interesting. I, I We talk all the time about how wing stopper defense is important. We saw a couple years ago in the playoffs when the Lakers won the title, didn't really matter all that much. We didn't play anybody that we really needed that until Jimmy Butler in the finals. There were, when I ran a little query in our B-Ball Index leaderboards tool, there were only nine shot creator wings that were 6'5 or taller this past season who had a total isolation impact in the top 25% of NBA players. And only three of them were in the West. We had the two Clippers, Paul George and Kawhi. We had Andrew Wiggins, who doesn't really do it much on high volume. He will ISO, you know, three, four times a game in terms of, like, actually getting a shot off. So that's not a huge concern. That's a small part of their offense. And then once you get to the East, you have uh, – Harden and KD. Harden fell within this because he's just a bigger guy. DeMar DeRozan, Jimmy Butler, Chris Middleton, Tobias Harris. If you looked at guards as well as wings, and I guess Harden's, you know, it depends how you categorize him, but Luka and Shea Gildress-Alexander would also match the height requirement here, though both are, I mean, SGA is lighter, and Luka is just more of a thicker guard, and I think I'd be fine with, like, a Kent Bazemore guarding them. And then you also have, if you look at bigs matching this that are shot creators or slashers that are that tall and isolate, we have Zion and Giannis. And I think both those guys fit the bill uh, of players AD would be taking on. So in terms of like, hey, hey, we need actually, we, we need someone other than, you know, for guys bigger than, we want Bazemore guarding and not big men in a way where we'd want AD guarding them. There are only a couple players and really just that one team in the Clippers. And it is only one team or two if you count the Warriors, in the West, two, two of 14 that the Lakers will need to play. But it is a team that's going to be competing for the Western Conference Finals again and, and going to the NBA title matchup. So it is important, but on a day-to-day basis, it's not going to be all that much important, at least within the West. So I am less worried about this weakness. And when we do need someone to do that role, I think between LeBron, Kent Bazemore, Trevor Ariza, you have guys that can do it. None of them are like bona fide wing stopper. I'm going to go do this every play. But Ariza is a great rotator. And if we're just looking at him in like the small forward position or the power forward position as a helper or a perimeter big, he rotates well. And I like his fit there. 
and when he needs to do some wing stopping, he can do some wing stopping. He'll be, he'll be beat with speed. That's his thing. And if you're facing speed, base more is more your guy. And then you have LeBron as well as an option. So it, it really depends on how much force, size, and speed or quickness you're looking at. But between those three guys over 82 games, I think the Lakers will be okay. The next question is the Lakers need, well, yeah, here it is. The Lakers need one stop to win the championship. What lineup would you have out there? So LeBron and AD are always going to be out there. I would say Baysmore is someone you'd want out there. Man, if it's one possession and like everybody's clearly going to be engaged, I'll put Russell Westbrook out there. And then for the last spot, it really depends on the makeup of the, of the opposing team, but I think you can make a case for Kendrick Nunn or Trevor Ariza, really depending on what kind of defender, what physical profile, what skill set you're looking for. But Bron and AD for sure, in most instance, instances, it's going to be Bazemore and Russ also, and then that last spot, probably Nunn or Ariza. Okay, the next question is, what should we as fans be watching defensively to enjoy the off-ball stuff like rotations and assignments? The data you put out makes us appreciate defense differently, but I think a lot of us want to be able to catch stuff happening live. That's a great question, and I think that's a great goal. It takes training your eyes a bit. It's uh, a little bit more enjoyable just to watch the game, to watch the game. But if you really do want to start noticing rotations, keep an eye out for actions that will trigger them. If there's a drive to the rim, if there's just an ISO drive to the rim, Someone should rotate to stop the drive. If no one rotates, someone probably blew an assignment or the offensive team did a good job you know, going five out or running some sort of specific play that took away potential help defense. And that's where, from an X's and O's standpoint, that's where you can make your money is design plays that remove help defense. So instead of needing to beat an entire five-man unit, you have to beat one guy. Because you can always you can pick on individual defenders, but defenses can stunt, they help, they rotate, all of these different things, they double team. It's it's hard. Even if you have weak defend even if you're facing weak defenders, it's hard to just go beat people 1v1 if you only have a couple, if you have like one good ISO option or two good ISO options. So you've got to be creative. Um, but in most instances, someone's gonna rotate. So on a drive, look for someone to rotate. And if someone's rotating, Let's just say their man is in the opposite dunker spot. He's open now. And if no one's rotating to him, that's a lob. That's that, that's your dunk. So that first rotation to stop the drive, we'd call that trapping the box. That's the first man rotating over. He's going he's gonna to stop you, and his man is now open. So again, if, if Marcus All rotates over and stops the drive, and then a lob goes to Marcus All's guy, that's not Mark's fault. Mark is doing his job. Someone was beat at the point of attack. Mark's doing his job. And then the next rotation after trapping the box is called sinking. And it should be the next defender on that weak side sinking down, rotating down to Mark's man, who often is going to be bigger than them, but really getting into their body, getting into their legs. And this is something I enjoy doing either in post defense or just rotating when I'm playing pickup. If I'm going and guarding someone who's like 6'7 or 6'6 or 6'5, I'm 6'2, they have size on me. But I know I can play with my legs and I can get into their bodies and make it harder for them to jump to catch lobs. Getting into their body, and I mean, I can go pull some film on some of the smallest players in the league being good at this and taking away lobs because they're taking away that leverage, they're taking away that runway. Get into their body and take away that pass. Now, if someone is trapping the box, you need the sink. If someone's sinking, someone's open still. It's just a different offensive player. Excuse me while well, I take a, a sip of water. So we trap the box, took away the drive. We sunk down to take away the lob or that dump off pass. There's, there's no dunker spot open here. And then someone's open on the weak side and it's often a 2v1 situation. And if you, as that third rotating defender, are falling asleep and not paying attention and you just stand, continue guarding your man, there's someone else wide open. We see THT do this a lot. We see Dennis, Dr Dennis Schroeder do this a lot. This is something that Russell Westbrook can get a little bit better at. That third rotating defender is called the man who is filling. So his job is to change, you know, maybe I'm trying to find a way to describe this. You need to get good depth 
in terms of where you're standing between the baseline and half court. You need to oftentimes step a couple steps back towards the rim, away from your man, and get yourself in a stance where you can see both of those offensive players and you're in a position where you can rotate to both, both offensive players. We don't want you to take away one. We want you to zone up and be ready to rotate to whoever gets the ball. And if that player does their job, we've got a drive that trapping the box takes away. They can't throw the lob because someone's sinking down. They go throw that skip pass, boom, the filling defender is there. And then by that time, you're able to recover and and get back to guarding everybody else. And the advantage is completely negated. So someone gets beat at the point of attack, but the offense gets nothing out of it because you have strong rotation. If you don't have strong rotation, if you get beat anywhere, that can be a bucket and be a bucket way too quickly. So defense is a team effort and awareness thing. And rotations are a huge piece of it. And if I were trying to put together a plan for you to notice that more, every time there's a ball screen, well, I mean, last year, every time there was a ball screen, it depends on what screen coverage this year we see. Uh, talk to me in a couple months, I'll give you an update. But anytime there's a drive, look for those rotations. Anytime there's a ball screen and you're seeing someone rotate, there should be rotations behind them. So take a look for that. And you're trying to get an idea for, you know, are these guys paying attention? Are they rotating on time? Are they getting good technique? Are you just putting a, you know, getting your arm out to guard that dump off lob guy? Or are you actually getting into his body? Those are the things you want to keep an eye out for. And those, I'd say, are some of the the most clear, uh, I don't know, translatable concepts that every single team is running to keep an eye out for. Even if within their scheme coverages with ball screens, they're they're really not being asked to do that. <clears throat> All right. It is hard to talk for this long. Who is the best for the chaser role for the Lakers? Would a Westbrook, Nunn, Bazemore, LeBron AD lineup be strongly balanced both offensively and defensively? Considering the West's starting lineups, which are often offensively reliant on their backcourts. This is a good insight. So we saw earlier how the East had more of those scoring wings. The West has a lot of scoring guards. And in previous years, whenever someone was like, who's going to guard Dame Lillard? Who's going to guard? Like round after round, the answer was Alex Caruso and KCP. And the Lakers had those guys. It's a little bit different this year. Um, when we answer, so I guess I'll start with that lineup. Westbrook, Nunn, Bazemore, LeBron, AD. That is a group right there that I think is pretty strong offensively. It has lots of creation, lots of shooting. It, there, there's a lot I like about that group defensively i think it's it's a pretty solid group um none isn't so westbrook bays more like ariza lebron ad i think that's a super switchable lineup westbrook none bays more lebron ad is a little bit less so because of none's physical stature but he plays from an effort tenacity and just when he's driven upon and you're bumping with him down low if you have a little bit of size on him he's okay He's not going to go guard a center. He's not going to switch one through five, but kind of one through three. He's in pretty good shape, and he's more versatile. He takes on harder matchups, and he's more impactful than all but six point-of-attack uh, point guard defenders were last season. So he's he's no slouch. He's no elite defender, but he's someone that I don't see as a great switchable option, but can do some of it. It really depends on what you're asking him to do. Um, but I see that as a pretty strong group. I'd love to see that lineup close games. Uh, I think it's one of the lineups that we'll use to close games. Answering their other question, who's best for the chaser role for LA? There are three guys. I'd say none, Ellington, and Bazemore are the three players. I'd say among their like optimized defensive roles, they're best in that chaser role. They are good with that, you know, chasing guys around screens. They're okay uh, rotating, um, some better than others. But th- those are players that I think fit that defensive role pretty well none is solid in each area Bazemore is solid at most Ellington is a pretty good chaser he's he's, a, he's actually a really good chaser Ellington might be the Lakers best chaser just in terms of not not the role as a whole not overall defense but chaser defense in terms of following a shooter around screens he's really good at that his rotations are just okay but those three guys I'd say would fit that role best the next question is I'm kind of worried about our ability to hide defensive liabilities 
I love a lot of the offense we added, but matching that with Vogel's scheme seems tough. Mostly think it will affect our second team, especially without AD on the floor. This is a good insight. The Lakers, you know, when you're picking up a bunch of min guys, usually they have a skill set. And when they are such background players offensively, you just kind of want shooting. And the Lakers did go grab shooting. They didn't grab a bunch of guys who are dynamic playmakers, drivers, all these different things. But they grabbed guys that could shoot. And then defensively, it's a weaker group. But there are some things that they can do. I think collectively, this new roster is weak from a rotation standpoint. And I think Frank Vogel's smart enough to realize that. What makes Vogel so good as a defensive coach is that he's shown multiple times that he's flexible and just like a flat-out awesome, knowledgeable defensive coach. And he can ID the strengths and weaknesses of his roster and formulate a scheme to best fit that team. There are really good defensive coaches that have one scheme that they can use and go stick them somewhere else. And they're going to keep trying to use that same scheme, if, even if it doesn't fit the personnel and that's not good. Or maybe they'll try other defensive schemes, but they're not good with drilling or instilling the, the behaviors and getting players to execute the way they need to. That's not the case with Vogel. He is a true chameleon when it comes to like, what do I have? And then how can we best deploy this? I think this is a great approach at the high school level and at the pro level. In college, you can recruit to specific skill sets. If you're most teams, if you're a Kentucky or Duke, you just take the best guys. But if you you know, aren't a top tier recruiting school, but you can get some good ones, you generally recruit to an identity and you stick with specific scheme coverages. At the NBA level, you, like, you're, you're eventually going to run into a roster that isn't a fit for what you want to do and you're going to struggle. Vogel's smarter than that. And I think we need to be smart enough to get ahead of this and be prepared this upcoming season for a different pick and roll coverage. Two years ago, our Laker ball screen base defense was their drop coverage, but a no man behind variety. This meaning the, the big man in the action, the guy dropping, the big man dropping. He was staying as low as he needed to. He was retreating to the rim to be the closest player to the rim between him the, the offensive guard driving, and the roll man. So if the roll man didn't really roll, he was really just worried about the guard. But if the roll man's rolling hard, he's going to continue bailing and backing and taking away that lob. And that then you have to rely upon your back pressure from the guards to disrupt that driving ball handler. And it's really a little, a little dance between those four players, but you're not involving your other three defenders in most instances. They don't need to rotate. They're not asked to rotate this would have been a great fit for THT. Uh, Dennis Schroeder is someone I like better defensively when I thought that was going to be the scheme coverage. And then the Lakers changed it this past season. And this past season, when they were running their soft hedges, their catch hedges, as is, is I've called them, that dictates that you have to rotate. When your big man in the action is focused on containing the, the guard ball handler and not letting them drive, that means they can't back up all the way to the rim if that's where the roller goes so the roll man is going unchecked by your your big man in the action so that means that you need to have help defenders go take him away and then if you're going and taking that tag it's just like trapping the box tags and traps the box that sparks the need for someone to sink down which sparks the need for another defender to fill and the Lakers struggled with this and I talked about it a lot I probably could have made better videos to show exactly what I was talking about but this was a big reason why Dennis Schroeder didn't have a great defensive season um, in the data and in my eyes compared to how a lot of people thought he did. Because he was good at the point of attack, but off ball, he struggled. THT struggled as well. He was great at the point of attack. He was great chasing, but rotations was a big, big weak area. This year, the Lakers have a lot of guys who don't rotate well. They have some that do, but a lot that don't. And I think they have two major choices that they can go with, I think they can do both really, is when Gasol or Dwight are out there, run your no man behind drop. It's not optimal potentially for Gasol. It may not be, you know, he's, or I'll say this, it might be optimal, but he himself is not a great uh, drop big. But I think asking him to do that is better than asking like Malik Monk and Wayne Ellington and THT to have to rotate and execute rotations consistently. So there's, you know, it's a lesser of two evils there. With Dwight, you're fine with him dropping. And then when AD is out there at the five, which we're expecting more of this upcoming season, I'm hoping 
for maybe 50% during the regular season, maybe 24 minutes of AD at the center, 12 for each of Mark and Dwight. I, I think it is probably between tw- you know 19 to 24 for AD at center and for most nights in the regular season. In the playoffs, it can go up. But if that's what you're looking at, that's half the game with him playing center. And in those situations... I think this is a roster, and I, and I see this from that skill set eval I did. This is a roster that can switch a bunch. And when you're switching, you also don't need to be having those, you know, tag, sink, and fill rotations nearly as often as when you're doing what the Lakers did this past season. So I see two clear options that both fit the personnel better than last year's scheme, and neither of the two of them require a lot of pressure in terms of off-ball rotating. You still will need to. If anyone's ever beat it at the point of attack and there's a drive, you still need to rotate. But in terms of defending the NBA's most common action, that ball screen, you don't need to have those rotations like nearly as much as, as they did this past year. So I see the shooting being a big help, and I see Vogel being flexible enough to optimize this group and lean into the skill sets they have, lean into AD's you know, defensive switchability, his versatility, and make the most out of this group. All right, so the next question is, which five defensive roles normally exist together within the same lineup? Which players' roles or uh, positions translate best to the playoffs? So this is a great question because we, from a defensive role standpoint, you have point of attack defenders, you have chasers, you have your wing stoppers, you have your helpers, you've got your perimeter bigs, your mobile bigs, and your anchor bigs. So that's seven. We need to pick five. Which five make the most sense? I'd say you're always going to need a point of attack defender. Sometimes you might even want two. But let's say you'll have one. And then with your off-ball guard defender, assuming a team doesn't isn't running out like a two-point guard lineup, they have more of a shooting guard, I'll say we want a chaser. And then with your small forward position, if you're playing a team that has a scoring wing, which many in the West don't, but if they do, you want a wing stopper out there. With, and that's more of that on-ball, ISO, out of a bigger player defense. You know, it's similar defense to a point of attack defender, but a different physical profile for that defender. So, you know, Trevor Reza, he would be a bad point of attack defender. He struggles guarding uh, speed, but he could be a, a decent wing stopper. I don't think he's going to be an elite wing stopper, but I think he could be a good wing stopper. Uh, you know, with the footwork technique he has, the size he has, the length he has, if there's a speedy guy, he's going to struggle. But otherwise, I think he can be okay. The thing is, out of that small forward position, if you're not facing a scoring wing, you want a helper. And that is what LeBron did this past year. This is, you know, primarily your off-ball, your guarding, kind of stretch shooter kind of players, not really needing to be involved in a lot of actions. But you are asked to rotate a lot. And this is something that Trevor Reese is very good at. When we go go look at the, the screenshot, go look at the analysis, he's a very good rotational defender. So I like his fit in that three position. If not playing wing stopper, he can be your helper and he'd be fine. Then, so with your power forward, you probably either want, uh, you, you actually, you know what? You'll, you'll definitely want a perimeter big. <laughs> he's going to be your first rotator on a lot of occasions, your secondary rim protector, LeBron can do this if he's a power forward. I think Ariza can do this if he's playing power forward. I can see both of them as threes being either wing stoppers or helpers, as fours being perimeter bigs. They're similar fits in terms of what they're good at defensively. And I think that's really interesting and it adds some continuity lineup to lineup. And then out of your center position, depending on the screen coverage you're playing, you want either an anchor big or a mobile big. If you're running drop, you're going to have an anchor big out there. Mobile bigs are your... Uh, switchier or your more aggressive screen coverages we're, we're trapping we're catch hedging a lot we're showing and recovering you want someone who has a little bit more foot speed if you have ad at the center position and he is switching everything he's within that lineup he's acting as a mobile big even if on the season as a whole his role is as a perimeter big this upcoming year he, he might not be a perimeter big if he's playing a lot of center so we'll see what happens there but so you want a poa guy you want a chaser, you want either a wing stopper or a helper, you want a perimeter big, and then you want either an anchor big or a mobile big. In the playoffs, this was the, the last part of the question, in the playoffs, anchor big lose value. I talked about this at the top of the pod. Uh, perimeter bigs, who just often happen to be more versatile, their 
impact raises in in relative value to other positions. So AD, when when he's suddenly more of a monster in the playoffs in a way that he, in previous years in the regular season, didn't really need to be. He wasn't asked to be. He wasn't, uh, you know, playing center a bunch, being switchy, all that stuff. His defensive impact was very good in the regular season, not defensive player of the year level, even if his talent level was, suddenly rose to defensive player of the year impact level in the playoffs because he was really unleashed. So keep an eye out for if he is playing a lot of center this year, maybe we see a more impactful defensive player out of AD, not just compared to last year, but compared to years prior to that. So that's something to keep an eye out for, but that's an example of a type of guy who gets more valuable in the playoffs some of those anchor bigs, well, almost all of those anchor bigs lose a lot of value. Point of attack and wing stopper defenders, as a whole, I, I don't think they go up or down a bunch. And I, I pulled the data, I looked at the data, I'm not remembering exactly which direction they went. But what I noticed was players either, either sunk or swim, sunk or swam uh, in, in those two roles in the playoffs. Because you, you're just going to play more iso ball in the playoffs and that puts more pressure on these players. So, you know, you're not going to see too many wing stoppers that were just fine. Either either they're going to get burnt or they're going to do a good job in the playoff environment. So that's that's how that looks. All right, let's, let's do another one. What is the percentage of these things in terms of defensive success for a player? I guess which of these are most important? We have how they're used schematically, their physical tools, their effort level, and their basketball IQ. So, you know, I don't have percentages. I'm not even sure I have a, an exact list. Um, and, and they reference Brendan Ingram, who they, they remember thinking would be a good defender, but he's terrible. Um, is it scheme effort, basketball IQ? You know, what's, what's, what's wrong there? I'd say there's more than one way to skin a cat. All these matter. If you have great physical tools but awful IQ, you're going to be losing, you know, your guy often or not making rotations, and that's going to be problemsome uh and it's going to cause a lot of breakdowns and you're going to be relying on your physical tools to recover to those issues that you created with your iq if you have good iq and great physical tools instead of having to recover with that athleticism as we see uh, russell westbrook happens to do um, malik monk does at times if you have great iq and good athleticism you can be more imposing uh, and really be more proactive and anticipatory and use that length, use that quickness, cover more ground, be in positions early to take charges, get deflections, intercept balls, get on-ball steals. The combination of those two together is really what gets you that like monster defender kind of player. But even if you have great IQ and aren't an imposing defender and you just kind of have average physicality, you can still be really sound. You can still be a very good defender because so much of defense relates to being in the right place at the right time. In theory, I, <laughs> me, can be positionally a good NBA defender off ball. I can stand in the right place at the right time. My physical skills are, and my technique is awful, and, and I'm going to get killed out there as soon as my guy gets the ball. But that portion of the game, you don't need to be super long or super tall or, 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 you know, built like a tank. Like, you can move around and be where you're supposed to be. And then once your guy gets the ball, as long as you're, you know, okay, you don't have to have great physical skills. Being in the right position gives you, you know, you're not giving up an advantage inherently in the way that players with poor IQ, poor positioning, poor, you know, uh, awareness, rotating late rotating with poor technique they're having to catch up and play from behind so and then i guess also scheme fit matters you know role fit matters you take a take a great point of attack defender and make him a helper and you're not leveraging his skills great take trevor reason make him a point of attack defender and you're not doing the best with him so that matters and that we know has a tangible impact but i wouldn't say it's most or least important i guess if i'm picking if, if all of them are average and I'm picking one to be elite, I guess I'd say I want their IQ to be elite just because a lot of defense is anticipation and IQ and positioning. So if I can have someone who's always where they're supposed to be and then they're average from a physical standpoint and they're, they're used in a role that, you know, maybe isn't perfect for them, but it's not bad for them. I think that's that gives you a really strong floor and still has some upside. Effort is something where 
it's really it's a matter of like you can't just you can't have poor effort that's really what it's about if if you have really bad effort if you're not rotating not because you're not anticipating or reading the play but because you're lazy that's an issue if if you're not diving on the floor for loose balls it's not like a super differentiating thing there are plenty of players who don't do that but if you're just not making basic rotations and doing what's expected of you out of laziness because you don't want it that's an issue so I see more of a like a low floor than a, a high ceiling with effort. So I hope effort's there for everybody. Coaches shouldn't need to, you know, get effort out of players. They should want to be there. They're professionals. But that's another piece of defense that is pretty important. All right. Let's see. We have a few more questions. We'll answer. We'll answer another one or two. My prediction on the player who will have the largest defensive impact this upcoming season. If we're going to go by like D LeBron, I'm going to say AD if he ends up playing center with a big portion of his minutes. If not, I'm going to guess one of the centers just because I know positionally it's going to end up being more important. Showing up is more important, but AD certainly has the most talent and he's got a pretty decent shot from the smoke we're hearing of playing more center. And if that's the case and he's healthy, like, He's, he's got to be that guy. So I can see AD having a really monster defensive impact season in a lot of metrics. All right. So there was another question around defensive potential being, you know, regarding athleticism, IQ, and, and someone about someone asked about, like, hey, can Malik Monk evolve under Vogel to be competent? And it it, it – it's hard to say. <laughs> it's it, like his athleticism good. We haven't seen that athleticism translate to strong defense. We actually know that positionally he's a pretty good rotator. He's, he's standing where he's supposed to be. He doesn't lose his man when his man cuts or, or relocates. And he rotates well. He'll tag. He'll sink. He'll fill. So it's not he's asleep defensively. It's he's not good in actions. He's not good chasing around screens. He's not good on ball in isolation situations. And he's not good fighting over ball screens. There's some effort related things there, but a lot of it is technique and technique can be improved, but this is a tricky area because we don't have stats for these. And and I know like if you're saying like, well, why are you leaning on stats? I want to lean on stats because we can find anecdotal examples of individual players getting better at something or not getting better at something. You know, the, these 10 players played under the same great defensive coach and these three ended up improving in big areas. The other ones just kind of kept doing what they had been doing. So it's really hard to say. It's really with like, I don't have age growth curves for, you know, how good you are at sinking or how good you are at fighting over screens. Until that date is there, it's really hard to say, like, this is what we should expect. But I also know, having been there firsthand, things like boxing out, things like rotations, which aren't really Monk's issues, so this might not apply to him, it might apply more to, like, a THT, those are issues that if you if you hold people accountable, they can get better. It has to be part of your day-by-day culture, it has to be something you care about every day, it's not like a once a week we point it out. But if every time you're missing a box out or every time you're missing uh, a fill, you get yelled at in practice and, and not like, you know, get in someone's face and scream at them, but it's pointed out to you and it's tracked and it's logged and every day, you know, it's on our score sheet for practice. We're tracking it during games. If it is incentivized, performance can certainly improve and I've seen it improve. And then if you kind of let it go, those are things that are easy to like, let's sink a little bit if they're effort related. The rotations, I think that's something that can stick. But I say this to convey that I know these are areas that can improve because I have been part of staffs that have improved them with players less talented than the players the Lakers have. So if it's important and if they make it part of their culture, we can see improvement and we can see a guy like THT just really, really jump this upcoming season. With Monk, I don't know. He's, he's really bad in a lot of areas. He, so a lot of the things I just talked about aren't things that he's, you know, really weak at. So that low hanging fruit might not be there, but his athleticism at least allows him to recover at times. Um, it's, 
it's it's tricky. We'll have to see how it goes. I'm hoping for the best, but I don't have the highest of hopes. So again, uh, another question, and we covered the answer. What are those areas of personnel optimization we see for Vogel to squeeze some more defense out of this roster? It's role fits, it's lineups, it's game coverages. Let's dig into those. Role fits. Make Kendrick Nunn a chaser. He's good rotating. He's all right at the point of attack. He's all right in ball screens. He's good chasing off ball screen guys. Make him a chaser. Move THT to the point of attack. That'll ask him to rotate less. It'll allow him to make more plays defensively on ball. He's going to get more steals. And use his length. It's, it's you know, leaning into your strengths and lean away from your weaknesses at the same time with THT. I think move Ariza to the helper role. And I think this might happen naturally by him playing small forward, him rotating well already, and the fact that a lot of West teams don't have scoring wings. So that naturally, that small forward position will become a helper role. And then I'd say move Kent Bazemore to the chaser role. He was a POA guy. I think just positionally, given who's on the roster, it he's going to do a lot of everything. I, I think he can fit in as a point of attack, a chaser. He can do some wing stopper duties. I think the chaser role, big picture, just fitting, slotting guys in. You know, he's the final domino to fall there. Because, I mean, he can do other things, but just given who else is on the roster and where they're better fits he slots into that chaser role. But with all of these, it's it's somewhat fluid, and we're going to see guys doing all sorts of things throughout the year. From a base scheme coverage standpoint, I talked about it, switching. If AD's at the five, switch. You have guys out here that, that are pretty versatile. Most of the players the Lakers brought in came from situations that were already switching a bunch. Miami, the Warriors... The Hornets, the Hornets even played a bunch of zone. Like, there are guys who are used to switching, and we've already seen how impactful they can be in a good or bad way in those environments. So you already kind of have a baseline with them, and throwing that into LeBron and AD, I think Russ has a good physicality to him. He can be someone that can switch. I I like it. I like it. You don't have to have super imposing guards in order to switch and be effective. Switching is effective because it takes away primary actions that just naturally generate advantages. And then the way to beat switching for most teams, the way they approach beating switching, I should say, there are better, there are other ways to beat switching, but a lot of teams just ISO. And you can rotate to defend isolations. And as long as you rotate decently afterwards, you're in okay shape. Um, but I think the Lakers have strong enough defenders to not need to rotate on a lot of occasions. So... I like that route. And then that no man behind drop coverage, I think is the other one. All right. I'm asked, what are the best defensive lineups for auto switching drop and more of like the hedge and rotation that the Lakers did last year. So auto switching, let's say Russ, Bazemore, LeBron, Ariza, AD five dudes there that I feel pretty good switching drop coverage. We'll say it's like a no man behind drop where uh, back pressure is important, but we don't need rotating. I know there are a bunch of different ways you can go. I, I think this is a style that Malik Monk can fit better into. I don't. I, I wouldn't say he's in the optimal defensive lineup, um, but you could throw Russ in there, LeBron, AD, Dwight Howard, I suppose. Um, hedging and rotating. This is somewhere where we we have lots of rotation going away or, or going on, and we don't want players who are struggling with rotations there. Um, so let's see. I'd say. Baysmore, Nunn, Gasol, and then pick two out of LeBron, Ariza, and AD. I think it's, there, there are different combos you can go with. Overall, obviously, the LeBron AD group would be best, um, but you could do Ariza AD, you could do Ariza LeBron. There are different ways to run that. Somebody asks, is there a stat for defensive stops at the player level? If yes, what's it called? If no, why isn't it being measured? So this isn't a thing. It'd be really hard and subjective. It can be done, but I'm just going to lay out why it might be difficult. So if I go 1v1 with someone and and I'm defending and they shoot and miss a jumper, all right, that's a stop. If I'm going 1v1 with someone and they're driving and then they kick it out, is that a stop? Is it only a stop if they had to reset? Is it a stop if they kicked it out and someone hit a contested three? Is it a stop if they kicked it out and someone hit an open three? Like, How do we define that? 
if the ball swung to my guy at the top of the key, and then, you know, a second or two later, he swings it, did I stop him? <laughs> like, if he dribbled for two seconds and then moved the ball, did I stop him? Um, is it a stop when I keep my, like, off-screen guy from catching the ball off of a pin down? What if it was because, you know, my screener defender also showed pretty hard and took away that guy from catching the ball, but then uh, his man slips in and catches the ball? Was that a stop? Like, obviously, they got something from it. Is it his mistake, my mistake? If if his man doesn't slip and we take away that off-screen possession, who gets credit? Is it, you know, 1.0 both ways? Like, there are lots of lots of details that would need to be worked out. At some point with tracking technology, we're probably going to get to that. Right now, it would have to be manual, and I know it would be super subjective and, and a little bit rough, but eventually, we're going to have something like that. And eventually... What that's going to look like is look like is someone just defining here's what we mean by a stop, and it might not mean the same thing to everybody who initially sees it, but once you understand what their criteria is, it can make some sense. <coughs> All right, uh, what is the best lineup for non-LeBron minutes to have at least a passable defense while offering the best firepower possible on offense? Uh, here's a group offensively that has spacing, playmaking, defensively is pretty switchable. Um, I mean, just take Braun out, put a reason and run like Russ, Monk, Bazemore, Ariza, AD. I think that's a pretty good group, pretty good group. And then the last question is we're running up on an hour here. How much zone do we anticipate, anticipate the Lakers running next year, given the defensive personnel dropping off a bit? So I, I don't expect much zone. Vogel's done it before, so I'm not going to put it beyond, uh, beyond him. If we get to the playoffs and like a team stinks against it, or if the Lakers feel they have their backs against the wall schematically and they just need to do something different completely, I could see it. We have enough guys that are weak rotating that putting a lot of guys just constantly in like it, you know, be aware of who's running into your zone and rotate and be in the right position doesn't seem ideal to me. I think committing to switching would be more interesting. I think the Lakers can be a good switching team if they commit to it if they explore zone more in the regular season I think this is the path to that I think they would feel they need to play Dwight and Mark but they either don't feel good from a drop coverage standpoint with like guys you know driving at them or they think the back pressure is really poor they don't think the rotating's good um if they're running a no man behind drop they just don't like guys you know attacking at Gasol but they also don't feel that these guys are mobile enough to play aggressive screen coverages like the Lakers did last year and, and prevent dri- uh, prevent drives from happening. Uh, I think if they feel a base pick-and-roll coverage that requires rotations isn't viable due to the personnel, that would contribute to this. If they think the on-ball individual defense is poor enough that like with specific guys they'll need to play that they'll always have... Or, I'm sorry, if, if they're... If they know they're going to always have poor enough individual on-ball defenders that even if they're switching, teams clearly have a weak link to target, and they like don't want to be vulnerable to like I don't know a defense attacking Malik Monk and then AD standing guarding a guy who's at the top of the key. That's him not in a great position to rotate and stop a drive. That could be tough. So if all of those things happen, and I, I do think this path exists. I hope the Lakers can, you know, not need to go to this and solve some things because zone defenses at the NBA level haven't been really viable. Uh, and there are less moving parts you can tweak as opposed to a man-to-man defense. Um, but if all those things happen and they say, we don't want to have guys rotating more than, you know, <laughs> this, you know, 15 by 15 foot box. And we always want to make sure we have a rim protector at the rim. It, it could happen. We'll see. I think it's not going to be their first plan, but it could be something that they go to. All right, so we ran through like 15 questions or so. I have more notes on defense. We have more questions on defense we didn't get to, but hopefully this leaves you knowing a little bit more about trapping the box, tagging, sinking, filling, uh, getting an idea of which players might change defensive roles, how the Lakers' defensive scheme as a whole may change, what some of those better defensive lineups might look like, and, you know, feeling pretty good about this Lakers' defense going into the next year. I don't know that it can be elite, but I still think this can be a top 5-10 to group if they commit to it and they make 
the role and scheme changes that I talked about today. So that's all for now. I have been Cranjus McBasketball. This has been the Lakers Exceptionalism Podcast. If you're enjoying this kind of content, go check out my Twitter. I'm at Tim underscore NBA. Go uh, check out my pinned tweet. We have a Patreon link you can go to and you know give us some money for the good work Tom and I are doing and uh, join that Discord group through that Patreon route. It'll automatically just give you access. Another route uh, is if you, if you want to go buy a Basketball Index subscription, you know, go send that to me. Uh, go send a receipt to me and, and we can get you in there as well. But that Discord has been a really fun group. It's constantly growing and growing and having great discussions uh, that are just like organically coming up. And it's been fun to track things and, you know, work on little sh- shenanigans and, and side projects and plans and schemes in there with that group. And uh, I've been regularly previewing stats or like this analysis I just put out recently. That group got to see that ahead of time. Um, and, and that's where all the, you know, the shit talk happens as well. So go check that group out. The Lakers exceptionalists join that group. Uh, there are a couple routes to doing so, but that's all for now. I hope you had a good one. Have a, a great rest of your day. And Tom and I will be back soon to cover some more content. Thanks for being here with us.